So it appears that most of you survived the great windstorm of 2018. <laughs> I went to school in Oklahoma City. We just called that every other day. Um, um, we are part, uh, we are on now our Lenten journey as we move towards um, the darkness of Good Friday and eventually the joy and the light of Easter. And during this, this journey um, towards the cross, um, we do some things we don't typically do. So some of you, if you've been around for a while, like I didn't know we did responsive readings. Uh, and we're doing that as a way to mark this time as unique. Um, it, it seems sometimes the whole calendar kind of runs together. Um, and during the Lenten season, what we want to do is we want to just stop and take a moment to ask questions about who we are and who we're becoming. We want to stop and take and think about our own brokenness, our own sinfulness. And, and so during this season, um, we are centering um, our series around what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And specifically, how are we with Jesus? How do we be like Jesus? And how do we do what Jesus did? Um, last week, we looked at the idea of abiding with Jesus, and we said we abide with Jesus through the power of the Spirit, and, and that the way we abide with Jesus is by adopting the lifestyle of Jesus, that the way we abide with Jesus is by adopting the lifestyle of Jesus. Today, I want to bit, dig down a bit deeper and ask questions about how we change um, and how we are formed. Now, today at times will feel a bit more like a lecture. It's maybe a slightly drier, um, but I think that the, the concepts that we're going to discuss are concepts that we need to wrestle to the ground. And so I want to frame today's sermon around one of the shortest um, parables in all the Gospels. Um, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 6, verse 39. Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 39. And, and the idea in this passage is what does it mean to be a disciple, or why do we need disciples, or what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And so Jesus tells a parable, as he does, and he said, can the blind lead the blind? In this passage about discipleship, about needing a teacher, about needing a rabbi, about being an apprentice, Jesus is saying, we need a teacher, we need someone to follow. I think sometimes maybe the problem with our world is that we are set on following, we're told to follow an inner light, or we follow one another and we realize at some point that we need someone with wisdom, someone with something beyond ourselves to guide us and direct us to where we are headed. But the problem is that all the institutions that at one time gave us that meaning and that purpose and shaped and formed us and gave us the wisdom, all those institutions have been exposed and to some extent deconstructed. Because in the old days, you would come to church and your pastor would tell you how to live and you would nod your head and do as he said or she said, normally a he. And, and that just doesn't happen anymore, much to my chagrin. You know, people now are asking questions. Oh, you know, you said such and such last Sunday. I Googled that. I don't know if that's exactly right. There's all these, all these things in our world are being deconstructed. Religion is being deconstructed. Religion is being deconstructed. Politics is being deconstructed, both on the left and on the right, right? The whole thing we see going on in Washington right now is in some ways a deconstruction of politics as we know it. And we've deconstructed everything, often for good reasons, to the point where we have no wisdom to guide us because everything is tainted. And Jesus eloquently tells us that if the blind lead the blind, They'll, fall, they'll both fall into a pit. 
Because when we have nothing to guide us, when we have nothing to guide us, we're going to lead each other off a cliff. We need a guide to show us a better way of living. And this is why I think the message of Jesus is so important and so relevant for this moment in time. And so during Lent, we take a few moments to ask questions about who we're becoming, where we realign our hearts and our minds with the teachings and the way of Jesus. Jesus continues, verse 40. The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, right, if you follow me, if you become my apprentice, if you become my disciples, you will be trained in my way and you will become like me. Training is an interesting word. We often don't like to think much of our Christian journey, our Christian walk as training. But the basic idea of Christianity is this, that as followers of Jesus, we should look like Jesus. And as we walk with Jesus, and as we train with Jesus, as we follow Jesus, we should begin to see a recovery of the image of God that was distorted in the first pages of, our sto- of the story that we find in Genesis. Christians are on a journey, or should be on a journey, to look more like Jesus. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we, as followers of Jesus, should be transformed, we should be changed, we should look like Jesus. But the question I want to ask this morning is, is change and transformation possible? Because too many churches are filled with people who look nothing like Jesus. Some of us, as we examine our own lives, as I examine my own life, I look at Jesus, and then I look at myself, and there seems to be a chasm, there seems to be a gap in between, and I find myself asking, sometimes in rather defeated ways, is it possible to change? Now, the process of being changed, the process of transformation is simply called spiritual formation. Now, spiritual formation, though, is not a Christian thing. Spiritual formation is a human thing. We are all being shaped and formed by something. We are all disciples of something or someone, whether we realize it or not. We are all following a path. We are all disciples and followers and apprentices of something. The question is, who are you a disciple of? And what are you being shaped and formed by? Because you often do not chain or choose that which is shaping you, but it often chooses you by accident, or at least accident on your part. James K.A. Smith, um, one of my favorite uh, philosophers, says this. He says, we are ritual liturgical beings or creatures whose loves are shaped and aimed by the fundamentally forming practices that we are immersed in. His idea is that we are liturgical beings, that we are all, we all inhabit a way of being and that those things, whether we realize it or not, they shape and form who we are becoming. So what I want to do this morning is I want to first begin by talking about four ways that we are shaped and formed. This will sound a bit lecturish, but I think it's important that we understand the things that are shaping who we are and who we're becoming so then we can begin to answer more Um, fully the question is change is change possible first number one we are being shaped by stories humans are narrative animals we are created for story and we are created to live into a story 
Why do you think that myths continue to be passed on through generation after generation? Because narratives have a way of reaching deeper than facts. And we are constantly being presented with alternative stories about what is true and what is good. And these stories shape our idea of the good life or what constitutes a well-lived life. Returning to Jamie Smith um, and his great little book, You Are What You Love, which is a, sh- a fast read, but it's phenomenal. He says this. He says, we, the, places we, the place we unconsciously strive towards is what ancient philosophers of habit called our telos, our goal, our end. But the telos we live towards is not something we primarily know or believe or think about. Rather, our telos is what we want and what we long for, what we crave. It is less an ideal that we have ideas about and more a vision of the good life that we desire. What he's saying is that that the thing that we're living towards is not often something we choose consciously, but often something that chooses us. It is that thing, is the life that we crave, that we long for, that we desire. The stories we inhabit shape the things that we love. Now, this is why marketers, this is why marketers traffic in stories. So today, if you were to go down to Whole Foods, just pick a random aisle, walk down the aisle, pick up some random thing, right? Pick up a, uh, a package of corn tortillas. Back in the day, they just said corn tortillas and like the nutrition information on the back. But now there's a story. It's about how someone collected this organic masa and pounded it by hand. And then someone, most likely a grandmother, made these in her kitchen by hand. And then these were freshly delivered to the store today. Right? Or, or it used to be that I would just go buy a cup of coffee. Right? I'd go down to Starbucks and I would buy a cup of coffee. But now I've learned that there's a better way to live. I can buy coffee that was handpicked in the Himalayan mountains that is sustainable in its direct source and it's supporting the farmers. Now some of you, some of you with your coffee habit, you are destroying the planet. But me, on the other hand, by my coffee habit, I am making the world a better place. How do I know this? Because on the back of the can of beans, it tells me a story and I am able to become a part of it. There's story is now my story and I'm a better person than you because I have adopted a better story your Folgers coffee is inferior to my story right this is why marketers this is why marketers traffic in stories they're told for a reason and we latch on to these stories and we allow their story to become a part of our story Steve Jobs was the master of storytelling if you ever watched a keynote that he gave I mean I would remember sitting in front of my computer in rap just raptured with what he'd say and he would say this is so amazing this is so incredible and I'd say yes yes it is and then he would tell the story of why it was now here's what's fascinating for you people who are Mac fanatics or Apple fanatics researchers have done studies they've done brain scans and they found out that when you get like stoked about your Apple products or whatever story Steve Jobs was telling you that it lights up the same part of your brain as religious devotion some of you are worshiping your commuter or your computers. But there's also broader and more nefarious stories that we're told. Stories that tell us that we won't be happy until we procure this thing or that thing. In, in uh, Navy Yard, um, uh, across from my gym, 
there is a new condo building going up. In fact, you can go to any neighborhood in D.C. that has new condos going up, and you'll find something similar to this. There'll be these giant banners with incredibly beautiful people who are either laying out by the pool or at a cocktail party. And I've never lived in a building like this, but apparently if you pay these prices, this is what your neighbors will be like. And in your building, there will be these cocktail parties where you're like dressed up super nice, and guys are wearing suits, and women are all dressed up fancy, and they're just sipping cocktails and laughing, and everyone is beautiful. But here's the best part. Not only does it sell me a vision of the good life, right? If I live here, this can be my life. Then this is the kicker. It tells me in bold letters, you deserve this. You deserve this. You're being sold an image, a story of the good life through these images. And then you're told, you deserve this. You are shaped by story. Number two, you're shaped and formed by habits. Our habits shape our loves and our longings. Your habits shape who you're becoming. And the thing is, it's often without our even realizing. Charles Duhigg, in a phenomenal little book called The Power of Habit, says it this way. Habits are powerful but delicate. They emerge outside of our consciousness. So they're not something we often choose. They emerge outside of our consciousness or can be deliberately designed they often occur without our permission, but can be reshaped by fiddling with their parts. They shape our lives for far more than we realize. They are so strong, in fact, that they cause our brains to cling to them at the exclusion of all else, including common sense. This is why you do what you do not want to do. This is why you do things that you know are unhealthy for you, but you can't stop doing it. It's because you're habited. Researchers tell us that at minimum of 40% of the choices that you make on any given day are not made through a conscious decision, but they are made through habits. And if you aren't aware of these habits, or you're not aware of what is shaping your habits, chances are you are being habited in ways that aren't good for you. But changing habits doesn't happen in a straight line. It's a succession of small wins. This is why last week at the end of our sermon, we talked about adopting the lifestyle of Jesus. I asked you just for one week, could you adopt 10 minutes of silence and solitude? Had I asked you, can you next week adopt all the lifestyle of Jesus? You would have completely failed and felt like a miserable failure. But yet, 10 minutes is something you can do. So you adopt the 10-minute habit. You use 10 minutes for seven days, and at the end of seven days, you're like, I could do that for another seven days. And then maybe you keep this up for a while, and maybe it's finally 21 days, and you're like, this is just part of who I am. And then you can maybe add scripture reading to the top of that habit, right? Habits, you develop habits through a succession of small wins. Right? You don't start by forgiving the most terrible thing that's ever happened in your life. Right? If you start by trying to forgive whatever the, the thing is that is hardest for you to forgive, you will find yourself failing over and over again. You start by forgiving the small things, asking God to shape and form you into the type of person who forgives. Right? You forgive the person who sits next to you and mumbles with the music that they're listening to in their headphones that sits next to you in your office. And as you learn to forgive this person, although that seems small, you begin to shape and to form yourself into the type of person who forgives. First, we, we are shaped by story. Second, we are shaped by habits. Third, and we're not going to spend much time because you know this intuitively, you become like the people you hang out with. The people you hang out with shape and form who you are becoming. Number four, 
you are shaped by your environment. Our environments shape us. The environments we inhabit shape and form us in ways that we don't even realize. Our city, Washington, D.C., is a formation machine. It has, it, has, it, it, it has hopes and dreams. There is an ethos of the city. It wants you to become someone. It wants you to become something. And it's not all bad. Right? When, when Charlie and I moved here, I, when Charlie and I moved here, um, we would drive the eight blocks from our house to Eastern Market. And we didn't think anything about it. And then we would travel, like, drive around the block seven or eight times trying to find a parking space. And so a trip that should have been a 15-minute walk became a 30-minute ordeal. And then after I lived in D.C. for a while, after I lived in D.C. for a while, it just began to be second nature that I would walk. And the idea of driving eight blocks and then parking seems Foolish, And in fact, when I now see someone driving eight blocks and driving around the, over and over trying to find parking, I think you are destroying your planet. I am superior to you. How dare you? Right? Because our, the city has something it wants you to become. It wants you to love good coffee and craft cocktails and delicious bottles of wine and all these things, right? When before, if you are not from here, once you live here long enough, you begin to find yourself being shaped by the ethos, by the environment of the places that you inhabit. This can be good, right? I'm way fitter now since living in D.C. than I was when I lived in the Midwest, right? Now I, I, I feel this pressure that I need to run because when I'm walking to the coffee shop, everyone else is running by me and they seem so fit and so happy and then I feel like I should be a part of this because I want to be fit and happy. But there's also a downside, right? The city also is fueled by power and ambition and money. And there's a dark side and underside. We are shaped by our environments. And whether you realize it or not, you become like the places that you live. So if we are being shaped and formed by stories and by habits and by friends and by environments, how then do we become like Jesus? Is change possible? First, to miss. There are some who would tell you, yeah, you can be like Jesus. All you need to do, all you need is the Bible. All you need to do is to believe the right things. I believe in the Bible. I'm all about the Bible. I'm, I believe in good doctrine. But you can't think your way into being like Jesus. Information transfer, information transfer does not yield transformation. This is why you can buy every self-help book in the world, but you will not change one bit unless you actually take action. Information transfer does not yield transformation. At the core of who we are, we are defined by what we give primary importance to rather than what we think or know or believe. This is why the central claim of Augustine is that we are what we love. But all too often, churches put all their emphasis on believing the right things, on gaining enough knowledge. But for whatever reason, it often seems that the people who know, know, who, who know most about doctrine are also some of the people who look the least like Jesus. Number two, first myth is, Knowledge or the Bible is all you need to change. The second myth is 
let go and let God. This, this phrase actually comes from a revival movement known as the Keswick Revival. Let go and let God. All you need to do is just, just let go and God will do all the work. And what I want to say is without God, we can't. But without us, God won't. It is a mutual participation. We participate with what the Spirit is doing in our lives. And as we participate with the Spirit, transformation becomes possible. This is why John Wesley talked about the means of grace. And he said, we are transformed as we participate in the means of grace. So then what are some of the practices? What are some of the counterforming practices that we can participate in that begin to change us, that begin to shape and to form us to look like Jesus? Number one, teaching and worship. It's this moment right here. Paul says, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Hearing the word proclaimed is one of the ways that God uses as counterformation. There's a great old, um, there's a great old saying that says this, if you want to build a ship, if you want to build a ship, then don't just collect wood and assign people tasks but instead help them to long for the open seas. The reason we gather on Sunday week after week is because we hear a counter story that reminds us that no matter what everyone else tells us, that no matter what our city tells us, that in a city that tells us we are what we do, we are what we accomplish, we're reminded that we are made in the image of Christ Jesus and that we have worth and that we matter simply because we exist. We're reminded that we are loved and there is nothing we need to do to receive that love. We come and we hear the word proclaim and then we do this really weird thing that few people do unless you're at the end of the night in a bar and have had a bit too much to drink, you sing together. And the reason we sing together is because in the songs we sing, we are proclaiming the truths of God. And, and as depressing as this is to me, by Wednesday, you will have forgotten everything I have said, but the chances are there is a song that we sang where the words will begin to rumble through your head and you will be reminded of the truths of God. The other, and this is just kind of a side note, the other way, the other point of a worship service, this gathering where we come together and we take the bread and the wine, um, is, is we are shaped by the movements of our body. If you don't believe me, just ask anyone who's really into yoga. There's a reason for the downward dog besides just it makes you flexible. The things we do with our body, it shapes our mind. This is why sometimes it's important to, just to, to raise your hands and surrender to God or to put your hands out like this and to say, God, I give you it all. I let go of all these things that I'm holding on to. This is why people sometimes will kneel in prayer or jump up and down or do all these things because the things we do with our body, they shape and form our minds. So the first way we change is through teaching. It's through coming together and worshiping God. It is this counterformative practice that every week we come to be reminded of who we are, not who others tell us we are. Number two, we change through practice. Loving your enemy takes a lifetime of practice. 
you continue to be a person who over and over, when someone does wrong to you, you forgive them. And as you forgive them, it begins to reshape and reform and regroove your brain to where it becomes more easy to forgive. But also the reverse is true. If you were the type of person who begins to, who won't forgive any slight, no matter how small, you will find yourself becoming hard. It'll be harder and harder to forgive and you will find yourself becoming more and more angry. You have to practice. It's, it's, about, it's about becoming, it is about the habits and the way of Jesus becoming instinctual. If you've ever trained really hard for a sport or maybe music, right, sometimes your brain begins to take over and you don't even realize the things that you're doing. It becomes instinctual. And so we, make, we take small steps towards the good, forgiving the little things and begin to train ourselves through the power of the Spirit working with us to become people who can forgive bigger things. Because the goal as we follow Jesus, as we walk with Jesus, as we become disciples of Jesus, is that the end point, the, the, the moment at the end of our lives that we are people who look like Jesus, who reflect the love of Jesus, who reflect the compassion of Jesus, who reflect the peace of Jesus the joy of Jesus. We change through practice. So first, we change through teaching and worship. Second, we change through practice. Third, we change through community. Now, you were changed through the people you hang out with. They shape and form you. Your relationships, they form you. But community is different than relationships. You often can choose to be around people who are just like you, and they will have an impact on you. But the beautiful thing about Christian community at its best, the reason we care about being a community that reflects the diversity of God's kingdom is because as we come together with people who are different than us, it begins to shape and to form our ideas and our understandings and the way we see the world. John Wesley used to say that it's impossible to be Christian unless you spend time every day with the poor. See, because the problem is you can begin to believe the myth and the lie that you are an easy person to get along with or that you are a person that, um, that, doesn't have, that gets along with everyone until you are forced into community with someone who is difficult to get along with. And then you begin to see yourself for who you really are. There's something beautiful about community because in community you discover gifts and passions that you never knew you had, but also you sometimes discover a dark side. Community is not always easy. But if we want to be like Jesus, we have to be part of a Jesus community. It's mandatory for transformation. And fourth, and we could spend an entire series on this, but it is placing ourselves in the environment of God's Spirit. We talked about this last week. We have to abide in the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit should become our dominant environment. We should so abide in the Spirit that it becomes our primary environment. Too often we look for God's Spirit in the extraordinary, the giant sign. But God is often present. The Spirit is often present in the ordinary. And the call of scripture is to abide with Jesus, to abide with the spirit in the ordinary, in the mundane, in the everyday moments of life. You can't, this is where I want to kind of begin to land this plane. You can't microwave character. You can't microwave Christ-likeness. You have to grow Christ-likeness. It's something that happens throughout a lifetime, through a journey 
So we return again to this question. Is transformation possible? What if you're bitter or you've been abused or, or your spouse has left you and cheated on you? Or what if you feel like a failure and you are without, a, with, without like any, it seems like you have no hope and no direction for the future? What if you're just a difficult person to get along with? What if you're an angry person, right? There's all these questions that you are, might be sitting with at this moment, and the question that is rumbling through your head, is change possible? Is transformation possible? And the message of the gospel is clear. The change and transformation is possible but it's not a one and done moment. It's not this instantaneous thing, but it's a journey that we are invited on with Jesus. It is a journey where we participate with what the Spirit is doing within us. It is a journey where as a community, we come together and we say, we see who God is calling you to be and we want to partner with you in helping you become that person. Become a person who reflects the love and the joy and the peace and the kindness and the goodness and the self-control of Jesus. This morning, before we begin service, our prayer teams walk through these seats, praying over every spot. Because some of you came this morning, whether you realized it or not, you were asking the question, is change possible? Is transformation possible? And some of you, the ones who are the most difficult um, when it comes to this question are the ones of you who've been in church for a long time and you've heard way too many sermons on change and transformation and try harder and just believe Jesus and do this and do that and then nothing changed. What I want to invite you to do today, if you are a person that's on this, that, that, that is asking the question, is change possible? I want to invite you to take a step forward and follow Jesus. Right? I, I, get, I get that Christians have done all kinds of dumb things and that the church has a dark side and there are all these things. I get all that, but can you just give Jesus a chance? Don't even trust me. Like, Go home and just begin to read to the Gospels. Begin to read through who Jesus was. Begin to read how Jesus treats everyone. Begin to read the ways that he treats people with love and compassion and grace. And then I want you to ask yourself this question. I want you to look at the arc and the trajectory of your life, to look at the person you're becoming, to look at the person, if you continue on your current arc, the person that you'll be in 20 to 30 years, and ask yourself, do you look like Jesus? And if you look at yourself and say, if I continue on the path that I'm headed down now, I'm not sure that I'll become the person that I would even want to hang out with, I invite you to try Jesus, to follow the way of Jesus. Now, we're not going to do, not going to play music and do a big altar call. We'll do that next week. Um, <laughs> but what I do want you to do is I want you to wrestle this question into the ground of whether you'll say yes to Jesus. And on Easter Sunday, we're going to do baptisms. And baptisms are an incredible way to make, a, to make a declaration to God and yourself that I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. And it also means that I am committing myself to this community. And the reason that their baptisms are such a big party is because we are committing ourselves to you. We are on this journey of change and transformation with you. You are not alone. Let's pray.